Okay, so uh, Ben, can you hear me? Very well, okay, that's nice. Let me just check this first and then I'll get back, okay. All right, so, uh, so we begin this series uh, today and uh, in the last two Sundays, George Chen took us through the overall picture of the Bible and the various segments of the Bible and uh, what each segment talks about as well. So we will get into each lesson, I think over the next 58 weeks, uh, barring four Sundays in between, we will get into some 58 lessons, and uh, today is the first of them, and uh, we're gonna look at creation and God. So I want you all, please, to sit here in a spirit of prayer, and uh, uh, let's pray that the Lord will speak to us this morning. And I also want to say that this is not an exposition, as was uh, talked about earlier. Uh, we're not going to obviously do an exposition of the 23 verses, but we will look at the main themes and uh, also where this fits in in the bigger picture of the Bible in those 58 lessons, right? Okay, so I hope you're all ready and uh, you have your Bibles open to Genesis 1, verses 1 through 23. Let me begin with an illustration, as always, uh, that warms us up a little bit. This is not a joke, so don't smile yet. Uh, when Rachel Saint, the missionary, brought some of the primitive Oka Indians to New York City, and she took them up to the top of uh, Empire State Building. Now, that was the first time these primitive Indians were getting into an elevator, and so they thought it was a room. And as the elevator went up, now they're not used to getting to higher places without hiking. So they didn't know where they were. And all of a sudden it went to the top floor and it went to the observation deck. And they stepped out, they didn't know where they were, and they were just merely looking at the pigeons and the pigeon droppings. From the perspective that they had, they could not see the entire panorama and the beauty from the vantage point that they were given. They were just looking at pigeons and pigeon droppings, not realizing where they were. Now, one of the unfortunate results of the predominance of evolutionary thought that is taught in our schools and often discussed about in our offices, in our culture, is that it has hindered even us Christians from looking at Genesis 1 from the right perspective from the right vantage point. You know, we often get bogged down trying to reconcile the creation account with science. And we often forget the right picture and the right perspective from which we need to approach this Genesis chapter one. We forget the perspective from which Moses is writing it. We forget the perspective of what it is intended to give to us. Now, we need to realize why God is putting in his word the story of creation right at the beginning. The intention of Moses 
in putting this creation story right at the beginning is to render God visible to all of us through creation. Is to render God visible to all of us through his creation and through his creative acts. Now the title Genesis comes from the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament and the title Genesis is borrowed from there. Not directly, but it comes to us by way of something called Latin Vulgate. Let's not get there, but that's just information. Now the, the word Genesis, the title Genesis is best rendered in English as origin or origins. Genesis is uh, obviously a book that is concerned with origins. Now, this is George Chen's slide, at least the, the left part of it, and he talked about the foundational books, if you remember. Uh, these are the foundational books. It's also called the Torah. It is the first five books of Moses. The Torah means instruction. This is an instruction that is given to the Israelites. And so, uh, George Chen summarized that into two words the book of Genesis, and he said it's beginnings and generations. But we'll expand on that a little bit today. Genesis is a book, obviously, that is concerned with origins. It is concerned with the origin of the universe. It is concerned with the origin of mankind. It is concerned with origin of institutions by which civilization is perpetrated. It is also concerned with one special family that is chosen by God as his own, and designed as the medium by which they would bless the whole world. But transcending all of these purposes is the revelation of God himself through the book. Yes, it is a book of beginnings. Yes, it is a book of origins. Yes, it is a book of origins of several institutions that we can talk about. But transcending all these things is a theme of the revelation of the very nature of God who God is in his nature, who God is in all of his glory. Now for us to understand the book of Genesis better, we need to put this in its historical context. And please listen to me very carefully. We need to ask this question, when and why was the book of Genesis written? In other words, when in the history of Israel was this book of Genesis written? And once we understand when it was written in the history of Israel, we will understand the purpose for which this book of Genesis was written. If you remember, the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt for about 430 years. And God brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. We know the story. And he did it under the leadership of Moses. The book of Exodus records for us how God rescued Israel through the sea and how he preserved and protected them in the wilderness wanderings as they were on their way to the land of Canaan. That is the story in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. We'll get there uh, in, in the course of time as you see the schedule. But the question that we need to raise here is why were they going to the land of Canaan? Having come out of slavery and bondage in Egypt, why couldn't they settle elsewhere? Why did they have to go to the land of Canaan? Now, Genesis answers that question, and it says, God had made a covenant with Abraham, his offspring, into the people of God. 
and to give them the land of Canaan as an everlasting covenant. So the command to go and possess the land of Canaan fulfills the covenant that God had made with their patriarch, with their founding father. So the book of, okay. <laughs> that was not what I expected. Anyway, we'll go forward. Uh, the book of Genesis, which was written by Moses during the wilderness journey, provides Israel with the historical and theological basis for her existence as a chosen people. Did you hear that? The book of Genesis, which was written by Moses during the wilderness journey, provides for Israel a historical and theological basis for her existence as a nation and as a covenant people, as a people who've been called out by God. It helps Israel understand their identity and trace their story and ancestry all the way back to their patriarch Abraham. And not just that, even before, and we'll get there. So the purpose of Genesis is to describe the destiny of the covenant people and the nature of the covenant God who called out these people to himself. They had to understand that there was no future for them in Egypt. There was no future for them in Sodom. There was no future for them in Babylon because God had specially called them and gave them this everlasting inheritance to go and settle in the land of Canaan. And moreover, their destiny was not bondage, but freedom. And the promise that was given in the covenant to their patriarch Abraham was that kings would come out of him. Dominion would be uh, the part of his descendants, not forced labor in the service of others. God promised blessing. And therefore, the message of Genesis would inspire the people who are wandering about in the wilderness. The Israelites were wandering in the wilderness to go forward and seize the destiny, grasp the destiny and grab it with all their heart that God has promised to them. When will I get my slides back? Uh, do I have to wait for what? Okay. Okay. Now, possessing the promised land was not an easy thing to do. There were giants in the land who had to be fought and who had to be conquered. Also, the people in the land were idol worshippers, immoral beyond description. So as Moses lay asleep in the night, he must have worried about this people that he was leading. Sure, they had witnessed God's power. Sure, they had witnessed God taking them with a mighty hand through the Red Sea, untouched. Sure, they had seen how God decimated the Egyptians with plagues and other things. They had passed through the sea without muddying their feet. But the question on the mind of Moses would be, did they really become the people of Yahweh in their heart and mind? Did they really become the people of Yahweh in their heart and mind? And the question here is, before they enter the promised land, I'm pretty sure the question on top of Moses' mind is this. How do you prepare a people to shun the tentacles of a deteriorated culture? How do you prepare a people who are going to enter this land which is filled with people that is of a culture that is immoral and that is deteriorated. How do you lay the foundation for a holy life? And the answer is Torah. Torah means instruction. The Torah came to be the name of the first five books that Moses wrote, which I talked about, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And as we open the Bible, we encounter instructions 
teachings given to prepare the Israelites for their encounter with gross paganism as they enter the land of Canaan. Now, let me set the context here for the land of Canaan so we understand better the context of the book of Genesis. There were several gods that the Canaanites worshipped. Now, these names would sound very strange to our modern ears. Let me mention a couple of them here. Baal is one of the gods. It's actually a two-syllable word, Baal. Molech is another god. Anath is a goddess. And El is the father of gods. Now, these were the gods that, some of the gods at least, that the Canaanites worshipped. Stories about these gods formed the belief system of the then known world. And even the Israelites were aware of that. So these gods were like most people. In fact, worse than most of us seated here. They play, they drink, and they drink even more. They fight, they deceive, and engage in licentious behavior. Now, just to give you an idea, let's take a quick look at El that I mentioned. He's the father of the gods. El is a brutal, bloody tyrant. He dethrones his own father, which is not a very rare thing in the ancient world. But here, look at this. He dethrones his own father, slays his own favorite son, cuts off the head of his own daughter. And he also has a reputation of inappropriate relationships with women. But perhaps you, you might think El is an exception, Ravent. You would have picked the exception. Certainly, the goddesses must possess a finer and a gentle spirit. But let me give you one more illustration here. Consider the goddess Anath, who is called the queen of heaven and the mistress of all the gods. She too is sensuous and she is violent. And here is a description of Anath at work. And listen to this very carefully, please. Anath hews in pieces and rejoices. I wish I had the thing to show you. Anath hews in pieces and rejoices. Her liver extends with laughter. Her heart is filled with joy, for in Anath's hand is success. For she plunges her knees in the blood of the swift ones and her thighs in the gore of the fast ones. See the description of what kind of a goddess she is. So while the gods fight one another, Anath sits back and enjoys the carnage. Okay. Uh, So this is Canaan. Uh, don't move, please. One second. Uh, this is El, the father of gods that we talked about. Uh, this is Anath that we are talking about right now. Now look at the description once again. Anath hews in pieces and rejoices. Sorry. Her liver extends with laughter. Her heart is filled with joy, for in Anath's hand is success. For she plunges her knees in the blood of the swift ones and her thighs in the gore of the fast ones. And like I said earlier, when, when the gods fight, she just sits back and enjoys the carnage and the blood and the gore and all of that. If her father, the god El, whom we saw in the previous slide, does not grant Anath her request for a palace for Baal, you know what she says? This is what she says to her father. Okay, I shall trample him like a lamb to the ground. I shall bring, him bring his hoary head down with blood to the grave, the gray hair of his old age with gore. Now imagine trying to encourage the Canaanites to respect their parents based on how the gods behave. Intrigue and murder, 
deceit and incest are what you get from these gods. The Ten Commandments that were given to Israel were broken without any hesitation by these supposed divinities. These gods were not sterling examples. So when these gods were not sterling examples, could they produce sterling civilizations? Not at all. Now these thoughts bring us face to face with one sober truth that we all need to understand. And that is this, people become like the gods they worship. People become like the gods they worship. Now their gods are their models. It would be disastrous for Israel if they thought that Yahweh was like one of these gods. And therefore Yahweh in fact warns his people that if they themselves became so depraved, he would spew them out of the land. He would eject them out of the land later. And that's why the Bible begins with the most crucial element of Torah, the real story about the true God and how God began the entire story, which is the creation of the universe. Now my question here before we get forward is, if you're trying to learn about God, why begin with creation? Why begin with creation? Doesn't that center on learning about the world? Doesn't that center on our origins? Not really. The Bible begins at the beginning because understanding God's creation of the world reveals to us the very nature of God, reveals to us what kind of a God he is. Now, have you ever noticed that apart from spending time with a person in different scenarios and situations, you would never be able to understand him fully and completely? For example, uh, let's just take uh, John Vergis, okay? Now, if I was talking to my friend on the phone who doesn't know John, and I just told him John is a gentle guy, he's a friendly guy, he's a very encouraging guy, he might get some kind of a description about John. But for my friend to really understand John, I have to tell him several stories and several incidents about John's life. For example, how he is as a father, how he is as a husband, how he encountered some difficult situation in his life. Now, all of these stories will tell my friend the character or a full-orb picture of what John really is. That's exactly what the Bible is doing here. The Bible is not giving us bullet points like we have on the slide. The Bible is talking about stories of how God dealt with his people, stories of how God created the world. So we can see God in different situations, different circumstances, different scenarios, and try and understand a whole, at least a holistic picture of what we can from this vantage point of what kind of a God this is and who it is that created the whole world. And remember, people become like the gods they worship. People become like the gods they worship. And if we are going to learn about God through this activity, Creation is the best place to start. And that's why we are starting with creation and God. It is a crucial event for a person's worldview, both then and now. Knowing how God initiated my world helps me understand my own relationship to God more clearly. Now, as Moses sat in his tent and thought about the challenges that his people would face as he led them, I'm sure he was worried about the encounter of the people with this violent culture, this sensuous culture. And I'm also sure that he thought about the neighboring creation stories that there were. For example, there was the Babylonian creation story called Enuma Elish. Now in that, there was a goddess by the name of Tiamat identified as the ocean. 
another god, a younger god, Marduk, comes and kills this person. And this is how the creation story grows, goes. He split her open like a, a muscle into two parts. Half of her he set in place and formed the sky therewith as a roof. He fixed the crossbar and posted guards. He commanded them not to let her waters escape. So half of her corpse was used to form the sky. The other half of her body was used to form the earth. And then the story continues. Look at this. Putting a head into position, he thereupon formed the mountains, opening the deep which was in flood. He caused to flow from rice the Euphrates and the Tigris. And that's how these rivers came about, is what the Babylonian creation story says. But when you look at the Bible, even the most superficial reading of Genesis 1 will give you a far purer and a more profound story of how God created the heavens and the earth. Now, could this people or could any people prefer the violence of gods over the purity and the holiness of Yahweh? This is how the Bible begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I'm sure as Moses was sitting in his tent and as he penned those words down with the background of all of these cultures in his mind, I'm pretty sure he fell down prostrate in worship and in adoration to the floor of his tent. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yahweh is the most worthy one. God is the most worthy one. Now, this verse is amongst the well-known verses in the entire Bible. This opening statement functions both as a summary, which is a title, and, uh, or, or rather as a title, and also as a summary of the entire thing that is going uh, to be discussed now, at least from verses 3 through 31. It affirms one central truth for us, that God is the sole creator, and he created everything. Now, what is so striking about this verse is the great theological truth that the verse is introducing God here without talking anything about him. It is also introducing God saying that he existed before anything in the universe existed, which means God is eternal and he created the heavens and the earth. It says he created the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth is a poetic expression in the, Greek, in, in the Hebrew language. It's called merism. It means that you're looking at two opposites and everything in between. So when you're talking about heavens and the earth, it means God created everything that there is and everything that the heavens and the earth include. Now, this poetic device is also used in the Bible, for example, from the from the rising of the sun to the setting of it, says the Bible, which means from the morning to evening and every time in between and all the time in between. So heavens and the earth thus indicate not just the sky and the heavens and the earth, but everything in them and everything that is included in them. So the point of the verse then is that God is absolutely sovereign over everything. God is absolutely sovereign over everything that he created. Now look at verse 2, please. Let me just read that for you. Look at verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now this describes the situation just prior to the detailed creation that is spelled out from verses 3 through 31. Look at the two clauses here that uh, give a description of what the earth was like. 
Number one, the earth was without form and void. Number two, darkness was over the face of the deep. Then in contrast to the first two clauses, the third clause offers a positive thought. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The verb hovering means to fly around or to flutter around. It is used in Deuteronomy 32.11 to describe an eagle coming and stirring up the nests, taking care of her young ones. So the Spirit of God was hovering over the unformed earth, which means the unformed earth was under the care of the Spirit of God and he was ready to create and bring form and order to it. The next section of the passage traces the creation of the universe through six days and we look at the first five days. Uh, after the camp, the week after the camp, the speaker who's speaking will take from day six and onward. So day one, we see in verses three to five, I'm, going, I'm not gonna read the verses for you because uh, uh, Marmon read those verses for us, but I will just give you a summary of what is happening here and then we'll get to the themes that are involved in these verses. Firstly, in verses three to five, day one, we see that God sovereignly creates light and separates it from darkness. God sovereignly creates light and he separates it from darkness. At the beginning of the account itself, we learn that the means of creation was what? It is the word of God. It is a spoken word of God. And the phrase, and God said, sets the tone of emphasis, not just for this passage, but for the entire biblical revelation. Now notice the phrase here, let there be, and there was. Let there be, and there was. Now the first thing that God calls into existence by his spoken word is light. And after the creation of light, God announces his evaluation of what light is. He called it good. Now the idea of the word good is that light is a useful thing. It is a healthy thing. It is a fitting thing. Since darkness yet remained, it was not completely taken away. God then separated it from the light. And after the light and the darkness attained their separate spheres, God named them day and night. Now the act of naming in the ancient, uh, ancient Near East was an act of sovereign domain. Now here when God names something, it also shows that he is sovereign over those things. He is sovereign over day and he is sovereign over night as well. So that's day one. We come to day two in verses six through eight. What did God do there? God sovereignly creates a division for the waters. God sovereignly creates a division for the waters. God created an expanse, literally a vault in the atmosphere, to separate the waters above from the waters that are below. With the creation of this expanse, God set a division between the cloud masses above and the waters that are below. And the sovereignty of God appears in this day's activity as well in naming the expanse heavens. He called it the heavens. And that also shows that he has control over that dominion as well. That's day two. Day three, God caused the dry land to appear and the earth to flourish with growth. Uh, that's in verses nine through 13. In the report here, we learn that God set boundaries for the seas, demonstrating his sovereign control over them. On the emerging dry land, God caused all manner of vegetation to appear. 
So there is no sea god. It's just that sea is under God's complete control. Vegetation does not result from the wars of pagan gods or through cultic magic. It results from the majestic word of God. God spoke and the vegetation came into existence. So that is day three. Very quickly, day four. In verses 14 through 19, we see that God appoints luminaries to regulate the divisions. The fourth day records how God created the luminaries, the sun, the moon, and the stars. The sun, the moon, and the stars are thus all God's creation, attesting to his glory, ruling over time by his decree. But not so in pagan mythologies. Sun gods and moon gods and the whole astrological arrangement of the pantheons of the pagans used to exist. They thought of these as objects of worship and forces of destiny. What a folly it was to follow the astrological charts of the Babylonians or to look to the sun god of the Egyptians and think the answers to their destiny or the destiny of the Israelites were in them. Rather, Israelite, the, the Israelites must trust in a personal god, the god who created the heavens and the earth and who by his word created all these things. So that's day four. Then we come to day five here. God creates life in sea and sky. Verses 20 through 23. On the fifth day, God created all the living creatures that inhabit the seas and that fly across the skies. This passage declares that life came into being by the direct command of God. Although these verses are concerned with general categories of living things, there is something very specific that is singled out for our attention. And the verse is talking about the great sea creatures. He created the great sea creatures also. I think the reason is because the pagans worship these great sea creatures as dragons and monsters and sea monsters and all of that. And the Torah or Genesis is subduing this pagan view and reporting that God created them all. Canaan may fear and venerate these gods, but Israel knew that they were just another part of God's harmonious, beautiful creation. They were not gods themselves. Now, when we look at the six days of creation, we can see positive counterpart of the twin negatives. Remember, we began by saying that the earth was without form and void. It was without form and void. By the end of six days, it had form and it was not empty, but it was full. And look at this once again. Day one, you have the creation of light and limitation of darkness. Day two, you have the creation of sky uh, by separation of the waters. Day three, you have the creation of dry land by limiting sea, which is creation of vegetation also. And then day four, you have the sun, moon, and the stars created. Day five, the birds and sea creatures created. Day six, day six animals created, and also man created. Uh, in the image of God. And day seven, God rests from his creative work. So if you look at it, by the end of day three, the earth is no longer formless. And by the end of day six, the earth is no longer empty. The master designer was at work. Israel's God is a God of order and beauty. And more than that, he's a God of wisdom. And that's why he created everything in perfect order. And that tells us the kind of God he is. Now we come to a few valuable concepts that the Israelites had to learn. By the way, I don't have my watch here. Uh, how long do I have? 
Okay. Can I take about 15 minutes? Just 15 more minutes? Okay. Uh, listen, please. I, I lost some time there. That's why. Many valuable concepts vital to the Israelite nation as they were entering the promised land are taught in Genesis chapter 1. And these are important lessons for our lives as well as Christians. Let me list out a few concepts here. Number one, concept number one that we uh, learn from Genesis 1. God is the transcendent sovereign ruler of the creation. God is a transcendent sovereign ruler of the creation. He is in complete control of everything that he created. He is not part of creation, nor does creation control him at all. It came into existence at his command. The earth is not a dead God. It is just God's creation. It is part of God's beautiful creation. There is no sea God. For the pagan world, the, the, uh, for the, pagan world, the world was a fearsome place. The large sea creatures were feared as semi-gods. But for the Israelites, Genesis 1 tells us that there is just one God. And all these are part of God's beautiful creation. The productive earth, the seasons, the light were all good gifts from the hands of God provided in his original creation. Now, these gifts are not dependent on cultic magic, but they are gracious provisions from the beginning. And that's why praise to the creator is in order. We must praise God for the provisions that he gives us. Now, this was Moses' warning in Deuteronomy chapter 8 to the Israelites. They are ready to enter the promised land and they experience all of God's blessings. But Moses warns them and says, later on, if you go and say, it is my hand and my might that has produced all these things, that would be a rank heresy. Why? Because God in his grace and his sovereignty has given these as channels for us, for us to enjoy creation, for us to bless God by looking at these. So that's concept number one that Israel needs to learn and that we need to learn as well, that God is a transcendent sovereign ruler of the creation. The second concept is the surrounding gods are non-entities. The surrounding gods are nobodies. Moses asserts that God alone created everything. That's it, period. He didn't consult with anybody. He didn't have to answer anybody. He just spoke the word and accordingly, the worlds, the universe came into existence based on his purposes. That is quite in contrast to the pagan stories that we just talked about of the other ancient peoples. Most of the pagan stories portray a great struggle between powerful forces where one God finally wins and creates the earth. But Genesis here reveals an effortless work by God. He just spoke the worlds into existence. Let there be, and there was. He is sovereign over and separate from creation because he made it by his word. And since he created the sun, the moon, and the stars, he is over them, and they are to be no way worshipped because they are just part of creation. And the fact that stars are created by God and assigned for them a fixed purpose by him in the heavens means that they don't have the ability to decide the destiny of anybody on earth, which means we don't have to believe in things called horoscopes because stars are just part of God's creation. They don't decide anybody's destiny here on earth. Now, the creation account refutes a number of other common religious beliefs as well that are prevalent here in India. And listen to me very carefully, please. When you say that one God created the heavens and the earth, it refutes polytheism, belief in many gods. 
when you say that one God created the heavens and the earth, it refutes dualism, the view that there is a good God and there is an evil God. That's dualism. But here the Bible is affirming that there's just one God, the sovereign God who is Yahweh. He is separate from creation and he is over creation. Now the fact that he is separate from creation and he is over creation also refutes pantheism, which says that God is one with his creation. He created matter, which means matter is not eternal. Matter had a beginning. Time had a beginning. And he pronounced everything good, which means matter is not evil, as Gnosticism says. That God granted to his creation the ability to be fruitful and multiply means that pagan fertility cults are a nonsense. They are not needed because God has given us the ability to be fruitful and multiply. And that a personal God put the world into existence and he put man, refute something called nihilism, which means that there is a purpose with which he's created the world and there's a purpose with which he's put man here on the earth. And that God created everything by the power of his word also refutes evolution and all the philosophical baggage that comes with it. And thus, all of these errors of false religions that have continued to raise their ugly heads across centuries can be refuted right from Genesis 1, just with the statement that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Concept number three that we come to. The creation account reveals many of God's attributes and purposes. The creation account reveals many of God's attributes and purposes. As we look at what God has made, and as science probes even deeper and deeper into the mysteries of the distant universe on the one hand, and the mysteries of the smallest atom on the other hand, it should stagger us to know about the infinite power and the wisdom of God. God is infinite in his wisdom. He is infinite in his power. Now, Matthew Henry put it this way, and listen, please. The height of the heavens should remind us of God's supremacy and the infinite distance there is between us and him. The brightness of the heavens and their purity should remind us of his glory and majesty and perfect holiness. The vastness of heavens, their, uh, their encompassing of the earth, the influence they have upon it should remind us of his immensity and the universal providence. Now let me just list for you a few attributes that we see of God's from Genesis 1. God is sovereign, we just saw that. Number two, God is all-powerful. God is intelligent, and that's why we see intelligence in creation as well. God is personal, and that's why he could create personal beings like you and me. And God is good, and he pronounced everything good in his creation. Fourthly and lastly, the concept that we see is the creation account calls us to worship, enjoy, and obey the creator. The creation account calls us to worship, enjoy, and obey the creator. When we see the wonders of what God has made, including the marvels of our own human bodies, it should cause us to exclaim with the psalmist, come let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. When we enjoy a beautiful sunset or see the Milky Way on a dark night, we should exclaim, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament his handiwork. There's no language nor speech where the voice is not heard. And those of us who know our Creator personally through the work of His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, we can revel and enjoy this world even though it is marred by man's sin. We can live each day 
in submission to his will as it is revealed to us in his word, fulfilling the purpose that he has ordained for us in this world. Now, part of our enjoyment in this world involves uh, seeing things through the eyes of a child, for example. You know, I think I want all of us, including myself here, to go back and look at the intricacy of a spider web and marvel at it. Or look at the beauty of the wings of a butterfly. You know, Sujay had it on his, uh, on his T-shirt. And marvel at the colors and the tapestry that is involved there. Or delight at looking at the rainbow. Because all of this must call us to worship and enjoy and obey the Creator. In summary, Genesis 1 should enlarge our vision of God. Genesis 1 should enlarge our vision of God. Uh, let me ask you this question in closing. I want to skip these slides because we don't have time. I want to ask this question as an application as I ask myself, how big is your God? How big is your view of God and how big is my view of God? Has he become so small that he cannot care for us? Have the gods of this world become so big that we worship them? Gods of pleasure, gods of achievement, gods of money, power and independence. Have they become so big in our eyes that we begin to worship them and forget who the real God is that Genesis 1 talks about? Has the God of Genesis 1 become so unsatisfying that the gods of this world compete for our affections? Or is your God, is my God, the God of Genesis 1, who speaks all things into existence, is sovereign absolutely over everything, who possesses all authority, is wise beyond anything we can possibly understand, whom we glorify in our obedience, whom we serve and whom we run to in our pain. The main point of the entire thing is there is only one God who created everything and who alone is worthy of our worship, trust and obedience. There's only one God who created everything and who alone is worthy of our worship, trust and obedience. Let me read for you just a few verses. George and read for us these verses and uh, let me just finish with this. This is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ flipping over to the New Testament. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is Colossians 1, 15 through 20. The God of Genesis 1 has a face and he visited us in the person of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's whom we worship and that's whom we've gathered to worship this morning. So there is just one God who created the heavens and the earth. And that's our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the creator. And we must be obedient to him. We must enjoy him. And we must worship him. Thank you for your patience. I know I took a little time, uh, at least a little more than usual, but I had lost time with all of these things. Uh, I apologize for that. Let's pray. Father God, this morning, as we look at Genesis 1, 
and as we also have surveyed the creation stories about what people believed in the surrounding cultures of Israel, O Lord, and when we also see how gory and immoral those cultures were because of who their gods were, we fall in reverence, we fall in adoration before you this morning because you're a holy God, you're a sovereign God, and you spoke the worlds, the universe into existence. What great power is that, O Lord? We can't comprehend it, we can't understand it. The stars are created by you, the sun and the sea and the moon and everything there is have been created by you. They are not gods, we don't look to them, they don't control our destinies, they are all good gifts from a heavenly father who's created them with a purpose. And help us all to realize that, O Lord, that there is just one God who is sovereign over everything and who created the heavens and the earth and who's placed us here with a purpose that we need to fulfill. And help us all, O Lord, in the person of Christ and by the help of the Spirit to glorify you every single breath of our lives. We want to thank you for this time. We also pray, O Lord, for the second meeting that's going to happen. We pray, O Lord, that your name will be honored in everything that we do today. In Jesus' name, amen.